So welcome to the Chicago course, Improving the Management of HIV Disease. And I'll start by introducing our first uh, speaker, Joe Aaron. Uh, Joe has spoken for us many, many times. Uh, he has a number of topics that he tackles for us, but today he's going to uh, review the CROI 2019. Joe is a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina. Uh, Joe, welcome. Great. All right. Everybody was so energetic this morning. That's great. Um, so I'm going to try to um, uh, match your energy. Oh, by the way, if you're younger than 45, there actually is a Poll Everywhere app, which you can download onto your phone. And it makes things very easy, actually. Um, someone had to show me how to do it because I'm, I'm actually a little bit older than 45. Um, so here's our first uh, question, which is asking you, did you attend CROI this year? It was in Seattle at the start of March. Yes or no? Okay, so that's good. Uh, for the 9% of you that uh, attended CROI, you can, you can correct me at the end, which would be helpful. Um, have you already attended a post-CROI update? Yes, no, or this is it. Great. So, so some have, some haven't, and for about half of you, this is your update. So great. Um, these are my uh, disclosures. Um, this is, these are the objectives I hope to um, uh, uh, get across to uh, people today. And I'm going to uh, jump right in. Um, I have a question to begin with. So according to the CDC, from 2013 to 2016, the number of new infections in the U.S. has continued to decrease um, steeper than previous continue to decrease at a similar rate, stabilized, or no longer declining, or has increased. So this is according to the CDC and their kind of definition of new infections. So, so go ahead and vote. Ah, uh, well, you're going to see on the next slide what the right answer is. Um, surprisingly, and this came out in February, this wasn't at CROI, but it was talked about a lot at CROI. Um, uh, HIV infect new infections have stabilized. That's uh, despite um, very effective treatment. That's despite the rollout of PrEP. Um, uh, and then I think particularly worrisome is that um, in... Uh, People between the age of 25 and 34, it's actually gone up. And then if you look at um, uh, uh, young uh, 25 to 34 African-American or black men, there was a 65% increase. If you look at Latino men, there was a 68% increase. So, so obviously, um, we, we need to do more. So... Um, one of the things we're going to do, right, is that there's now a, a, a president's program to end HIV. There's some really remarkable things uh, on this map at the bottom. This is from the CDC. 
who knows how many counties there are in the United States? Don't answer, Eric. There are 3,100 approximately counties. It depends on if you believe Siri or Tony Fauci. Um, Siri had a slightly higher number than Tony Fauci, but Eric said that Tony's older and he probably knows more. Um, and and 40, 50% of all new HIV infections are in just 48 counties. To me, that was like a remarkable um, result. And, 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 and you can see, you know, right here, is my pointer showing up? That's good, excellent. There you guys are. Um, so uh, obviously Chicago is part of this. And then there are seven states where um, there's a very high burden of rural um, uh, rural um, uh, HIV infection. And I, I come from North Carolina. We didn't make it, but that's because we have a very high burden county, just like Tennessee um, uh, didn't make it, but they have a ton of rural HIV in Tennessee, but they have a high burden county. So, so they have an urban and rural epidemic. Um, so it's really kind of amazing. And the way we're going to um, address this is diagnose all people with infection as, as soon as possible after they're infected, treat people rapidly and effectively and sustain suppression, um, protect people at risk. And we're going to talk about PrEP and Rafe, he's going to have a whole um, a panel in the afternoon on PrEP and then respond rapidly to outbreaks using uh, phylogenetics and other techniques to find rapidly uh, spreading clusters and interrupt them. And then there's going to be an HIV health force, which is different than the space force, um, uh, which is um, uh, really going to be committed to trying to decrease um, HIV. And I, I, I hope this works. Uh, I, I think 30, 2030 is an awful, um, uh, is a goal that, that is worth setting, but I think um, it's also a pretty challenging goal. So I'm going to talk about prevention, and this will help set up a little bit about what Rafi is going to talk about. This is the DISCOVER study. So this is a randomized trial comparing um, uh, FTC-TAF, and I'm going to say the trade name uh, uh, once, um, Descovi, to uh, FTC-TDF, which everybody knows is, is Truvada, just so everybody's kind of level set. Uh, and this was a very large randomized trial of pre-exposure prophylaxis in men who have sex with men and transgendered women. And these are the demographics here. There are over 2,500 individuals in each arm. I'm gonna point out a couple of things. One is they're only 9% black, 9% black, only 24% Hispanic. So remember that from that very first slide I showed you. And, and, and only 2% transgendered, and, which is probably the highest risk group in, in, in uh, well, anywhere actually. Um, but they were very high risk in terms of their behaviors. And down at the bottom are their risk behaviors. Uh, and, and what did they find? Well, basically, they found these two interventions were very comparable. But I want you to point out and remember uh, certain questions on a test. Um, uh, <laughs> the incidence was incredibly low, right? The incidence was 0.16 per 100 person years or one, less than one out of 100. And in fact, if you took the average of the two, it's about 0.2 per 100 person years. So less than 1%. Some of you here might remember the HPTN Brothers study that was done. The incidence there was 3%. And in young black men, it was 6%. So this is um, 30 times lower than that. Um, so it means one of two things. These drugs work super well or this wasn't as high risk a population despite the behaviors. So one of two things. But what the study clearly showed is that um, the 
TAF FTC was non-inferior to um, uh, TDF FTC. And, and we'll talk about the implications of that this afternoon in the um, breakout, uh, uh, in the uh, panel discussion. Uh, and it turns out um, of the seven infections on the, the TAF FTC arm, uh, one was um, uh, actually infected at baseline. So I'm not sure why they counted that one. Five of them didn't have very high levels of uh, tenofovir uh, 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 diphosphate uh, on their dried blood spots, so they were probably not adherent. And only one had adequate levels. And in the uh, TDF-FTC arm, four were infected at baseline. Uh, Ten didn't have adequate levels, and only one. Um, so two out of uh, um, over 5,000 were infected and had adequate levels. So, so certainly very effective drugs uh, provided these people were in, in a high risk groups. Uh, there was some resistance that occurred. Uh, there were four FTC resistance. It was all four of these um, uh, men who were infected at baseline. So that's not surprising, right? Infected at baseline, then they got two drug therapy, they developed resistance. Uh, so what about other forms of, of um, uh, uh, prevention. Uh, people are thinking about developing TAF as a long-acting preparation for prevention, and, and Tom Hope here in Chicago has been working on that. But there was a study presented um, at um, CROI that looked at TAF, whether it protected um, uh, monkeys, uh, female monkeys, from vaginal exposure. We know that FTC TAF uh, uh, protects uh, monkeys from rectal exposure, 100% uh, protection. If you look at vaginal exposure with FTC TAF, you can see near 100% pre prevent, uh, prevention. And this one animal actually didn't really have detectable uh, levels of, of uh, TAF uh, 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 diphosphate, uh, tenofovir diphosphate in, in their PBMC. But if you look at TAF, uh, for vaginal protection uh, in, uh, uh, in macaques, um, it actually uh, wasn't very effective. It was more effective than placebo, and they were able, by combining multiple different placebo groups, to come up with a, uh, a significant p-value. But um, essentially, three out of the seven animals um, became infected with, when uh, protected with TAF alone. So something to think about. The other thing at, at CROI that was interesting in, in the, uh, in the kind of prep. In New York City, they looked at um, about 3,600 new diagnoses, and they put them into two groups, those that never used PrEP, and there were 3,500 of those, and people who had used PrEP sometime in the past, and there were 91 of those. And the important point in this study was of the PrEP users in the past, 29% actually had an M184V mutation. So um, again, Raising the concern, especially if you're kind of off and on PrEP and you become infected, you may select for resistance. So if you see a new patient and they have a history of um, uh, PrEP exposure in their past, you should have a heightened um, concern that they may have um, uh, 3TC and FTC resistance. So what about testing, treatment, and complications? Um, this was an interesting study done in uh, Durban, South Africa, where they looked at whether if you could give point-of-care viral load results, did that improve outcome? So if you could, while the patient was sitting in front of you, you could say their viral load was suppressed or not suppressed, uh, would it be useful? And um, who's familiar with GeneXpert? We use GeneXpert in diagnosing TB, where you can use GeneXpert 
to amplify almost anything. So you can do it to amplify HIV. So you can get an HIV test result in about two to three hours. Uh, so what they did is looked at um, providing this um, viral load um, uh, this, uh, uh, to patients on the same day, and it was randomized. So some got the viral load, some some didn't. And and what I don't think would surprise anybody here, uh, it, uh, those who got their viral load were more effectively retained in care and suppressed at 12 months. So 90% versus 76%. Um, so giving people information Im improves how they do care. So that's that's not surprising, but I think it's nice to see it demonstrated. Um, Eric's gonna talk about some of the clinical treatment trials at Red Croy, but um, this is one, this is the Dawning study. Dawning was a randomized trial in first line uh, NNRTI failures, and they were randomized either dolutegravir or um, lopinavir, ritonavir, and two nukes. They had to have one active nuke by genotype, and one of the things that comes up all the time is um, in our second line therapy, should we use 3TC or FTC when 184V is present? People say, oh, it's not an active drug. And other people like me say, oh, yes, it has partial activity. Um, so in the study, you'll remember dolutegravir was superior to lopinavir ritonavir, 84% uh, versus uh, 70%. Um, but this is actually to look at um, the effectiveness of therapies that contain 3TC or FTC. Um, so uh, despite uh, the fact that um, uh, very high percentage uh, of, um, of, of uh, patients had um, either M184V or M184V plus um, other uh, nucleoside RAMs, so 59 plus 25, so 84% um, of the patients on dolutegravir, and 81% had an M184V or M184I mutation. Um, and of those, 71% included either 3TC or FTC uh, in the background regimen in the dolutegravir arm, or 67%. So, so most of the people that had um, uh, M184V actually got 3TC or FTC. And remember, they would have then only got one other active NRTI than plus lopinavir or dolutegravir. Um, and um, I think not surprising to me is those people did fine. Um, so this is the overall result, 84%. We can just focus on dolutegravir because it's really the same. If um, uh, M184V was present, um, the result was um, uh, 80, um, 84%. And if uh, they used 3TC or FTC, it was 85%. And actually, if you didn't use it, it was slightly less, probably not significantly different. Um, but was slightly less. So there was no disadvantage to using 3TC or FTC. And you know maybe um, there was uh, uh, some uh, slight advantage and it really didn't matter what other resistance mutations you had. In fact, if you had uh, TAMs, it, it was 90%. So, so um, uh, there really wasn't, didn't seem to be a, a negative impact. Um, so you could look at other things. Well, what if um, K65R was present? Well, um, and they didn't tell us in the analysis whether that was 65R plus 3TC, uh, plus uh, M184V or not. But again, the results were very good. My suspicion is AZT was used really commonly, though they didn't say, because remember AZT has um, uh, increased activity against viruses with K65R. Um, and those that had uh, K65R and tenofovir was used, which was pretty uncommon, 
Um, th that was, uh, uh, it was successful, but it's uh, six out of seven. And the same for if there were TAMs present, um, uh, that result was very good. And, and, and Zidovidine used in the presence of TAMs, the results were, were, were pretty good. So, so again, these nucleoside mutations don't have a lot of impact if you pick one fully active nuke and continue uh, 3DC or FTC. So I think we can feel pretty comfortable about that. I think everybody here is aware of the Sapamo study that um, suggested that dalutegravir um, might have uh, an impact on neural tube defects. Um, there are more data collected now that's being analyzed as we speak. In this particular study, it was a suggestion of uh, approximately a six to nine-fold increased risk. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and that's obviously created a lot of uh, uh, angst and, and uh, certainly changed our approach to using dalutegravir. Um, at CROI, there was an attempt to look at other um, integrase inhibitors. Uh, there was an examination of raltegravir where they looked at exposures during pregnancy and they didn't see any neural tube defects, but if you looked at pre or periconception, the numbers were really uh, quite small. Um, so it's hard to be super confident. Um, in the pregnancy registry, there are no neural tube defects with either L-vitegravir or raltegravir. And, um, and the Gilead also took a look at their safety data and really um, uh, couldn't find any prospective neural tube uh, defects. There are some retrospective reports, but those are obviously full, filled with bias if you look retrospectively um, instead of uh, prospectively. Uh, so I think by the summer, probably by the Mexico City meeting, we'll have more data on dalutegravir from the Sapamo study. Okay, um, here's your next ARS question. In any accord, which is a very large observational database, uh, which medication was associated with the greatest weight gain over two years following initiation of therapy? Um, so there, there are your choices, all medications uh, familiar to you. Which medication was associated with the greatest amount of weight gain? Uh, this is initiation of therapy. So, so um, treatment-naive people who were started on therapy. And everybody vote. We, we, not everybody's voting here. Go ahead and click. It's okay. Nobody knows what you're voting. Don't let the sound feel. you can push anybody. I heard say unsure. Unsure is good. Don't even try to understand. Oh, would you would you give me a high sign when I have like five minutes left? Because um, oh oh, there's a timer. Excellent. Um, uh, so people have been paying attention. Uh, these are the data from NA Accord. Uh, number one, uh, it, this is a complicated study. A lot of um, uh, 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 patients. Uh, uh, you know, twenty thousand or so patients. Um, but um, they did a lot of imputation and had statistical methods to help kind of um, get this kind of very smooth distribution. And it looked like over a five-year period, five is a little small, it was about a six um, kilogram weight gain with integrase, um, a five kilogram weight gain uh, with PIs and four kilogram. And, and some of this probably is return to health, right? Um, if you look at the individual integrase inhibitors, again, this is two years, not five years. And you can see again, the, the weight gain was greatest with dalutegravir and they did try to control for lots of things, but this is not a randomized comparison, excuse me, this is an observational cohort. So how do you sort out between um, return to health 
and the effect of our medication. So that's a good question. The ACDG, Jordan Lake, um, did a really nice study. Um, so um, this is an observational cohort. Probably some of you have patients. Uh, I know Biba had a ton of patients um, uh, in these studies um, where they looked at patients over time. And so this is way over time. And um, this is when they first started therapy and before integrase inhibitors were invented. And then this time zero here is when they switch to an integrase inhibitor. So you can see on PI or NNRTI, there was weight gain um, of, of several kilograms, um, uh, uh, which was their return to health. But then these people whose presumably health has returned because they remain suppressed. These are people had to stay suppressed. You can see an increase again on integrase inhibitors. So there probably is some impact of integrase inhibitors. And if you look over here, Again, this is kilograms per year. Um, and again, dolutegravir um, had the most kilograms per year. Um, in this case, uh, raltegravir had the least and elvitegravir was in the middle. So something is probably going on with our integrase inhibitors and it'll be really important to, to sort that out over time. Um, this was an interesting study. I'll just say this for a minute to try to stay on time here. Um, in, in San Francisco, and Paul probably knows a lot more about this than, than I do, in San Francisco County, um, they have a project where all um, sudden deaths are autopsy, you know, unless there's a, obviously a, um, a, a reason for the uh, uh, family to decline. Uh, and some smart person decided, well, why don't we look at sudden deaths in people that have HIV? Um, uh, and, and so they did, and they tried to define sudden cardiac death versus sudden death from other causes, and they, they have a, a, you know, a bunch of rules to uh, uh, call something a presumed sudden uh, cardiac death. And on this side, I just want to show you that in, in HIV patients, um, about half had some heart problem, uh, either chronic coronary disease, cardiomyopathy, um, uh, cardiac hypertrophy, some sort of electrical problem with their, their heart. But I think what's remarkable is that almost a third, um, almost a third, uh, um, sorry, more than a third actually had um, uh, occult overdose. So it's thought to be a sudden cardiac death, but it was actually an occult overdose. And I think that's, that's really an important um, uh, reminder to us that, that our patients, um, uh, in the context of the uh, opioid and other epidemic uh, uh, are, are at risk. And methamphetamine, opioids, alcohol, um, were all uh, 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 the cause in, in some of these occult overdose uh, deaths um, that weren't suspected. So the last area I'm gonna talk about is HIV persistence. And I'm gonna say a tiny little bit about cure. Dan Baruch is gonna talk a lot more about cure uh, later. Um, so who here, okay, oh, first I have to ask a question. Most patients were on stable antiretroviral therapy with low level viremia. So viral loads between 20 and 100 or 20 and 150 have, uh, uh, have ongoing replication and are at risk for resistance emergence. Yes or no? Or you don't know? So go ahead and vote. Eric talks, it's going to be all speed songs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, false, excellent. How many people here have patients like that? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, how many people have patients like that and you worry? <laughs> Who didn't raise their hand? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's me. I, I definitely worry. Um, uh, and this study by um, Lou Halvis and, and John Mellers and their colleagues um, tried to look at this. So they wanted to collect patients that had this persistent low-level viremia, and they wanted to do something really clever. They wanted to look at the viruses in these patients at very low level and sequence them and see if there was any evolution over time and see if the um, viruses that were there were like really diverse, like coming from a lot of different places that would suggest that they were replicating. Um, and that's um, really hard to do because they're trying to sequence viruses with viral loads of 50 or 100, it's, it's, a, it's hard work. And in some cases, they try to sequence the entire um, uh, full length of the virus, which is really, really difficult at low levels. And I'm gonna walk you through one um, uh, patient and then show you their accumulated data. So this is one patient. So they started out by just looking at plasma sequence at two different time points. And this is a phylogenetic tree. And basically what you need to know about phylogenetic trees, if, if everything shows up on the same place on the line, they're, they're identical. Um, and here they're not uh, uh, sequencing the entire virus, so it's possible that they're not identical, but it's unlikely. And what you can see is in this patient, there were essentially three groups of viruses that were um, uh, nearly identical. So, and, and the uh, round dots are the first time point and the square dots, if you can have a square dot, are the, uh, are the uh, a second time point. You can see that the same virus is kind of showing up here and here and here. And then they said, well, let's look at the DNA. Let's look at um, the, the virus that's in the cells. But maybe that's different. Maybe these viruses are coming from somewhere else. Uh, and again, it, again, uh, round is first time point. Uh, square is um, uh, second time point. And you can see, again, they're all showing up in these groups, right? Um, now, the DNA is a little bit more diverse, not too surprising, because there's a lot of um, uh, uh, non-functional uh, uh, genomes in the DNA. But again, where you find the plasma virus, you also find DNA virus, not, not too surprising. And then they did this NFL, that's near full length, so a big, long sequence to be sure. And they actually found that, again, um, that these near full length viruses were matching right up. And then they did something really hard. They did a QVOA assay. So a QVOA assay is when you separate the cells out and then you stimulate them so that one virus is growing in each well. So you dilute them till you get one virus in each well. This is a QVOA assay. Um, and then, you, then they sequence that virus. Um, and what they found is that the replicating virus from the cells was the same as the virus in the plasma in this patient. And they looked at a lot of different wells. And so what that says is this patient has replicating virus. It has virus that's capable of replicating. But again, um, they had different time points and they all showed up at the same place. There was, there was no evolution. And it was, these, it was probably a clone of viruses, a clone of cells <laughs> producing the, the same virus. Um, so no replication. And, and what they call repliclones or, or uh, uh, cells that have actually divided while they contain the virus and are producing virus. And then if um, they looked at a whole bunch of uh, uh, patients, uh, nine, they did find one that had replication and resistance. So 
you know, if the viral load is going up or it's, you know, um, it's or, or at the higher end, you know, don't, um, you know, always worry. Everybody worried good. Um, but they found that most patients had these identical sequences, some a lot, some a little. Um, most of these sequences you could match up to what was in the, uh, the DNA. Um, many of them you could match up with the, the replication uh, uh, competent virus from these uh, Cuboa, these outgrowth assays. And some of them, they, they matched up really well. Some, some, it didn't match up as well. And that's not too surprising. Maybe those um, uh, cells with replicating virus aren't, haven't expanded, so you won't find them in the plasma. But I think this is basically um, what 53% of you said, is that those people with low-level viremia probably don't have ongoing replication. They probably have a big pool of these cells that are producing virus. And I think also what we know is that people that are below the limit of detection probably also have these replicones. They're just harder to detect because it's harder to do the sequence. Okay, finally, probably many of you heard at Croy, um, there was a, um, another potential cure. Uh, this was published on the same day uh, in Nature um, by, by Ravi Gupta, who's here. And, and this is Timothy Brown, the, the, the first uh, patient. And this picture was taken by Pablo Tebas. This slide was given to me by uh, Raj Gandhi. Uh, and um, uh, uh, what uh, Dr. Gupta and his many colleagues uh, showed is uh, the, what's now called the London patient. He had um, uh, un, un, uh, uh, recurrent or untreatable uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, failed chemotherapy. Uh, so he needed a stem cell transplant. He also got a CCR5 negative donor, just like Timothy, Timothy Brown. What's interesting is that he got reduced intensity conditioning. So, so his um, chemotherapy prior to the transplant was less intense, and he didn't get total body radiation, um, which is also um, kind of less intense. He did have um, uh, EBV reactivation, so got some rituximab. He did add graft versus host, as did Timothy Brown. And he had this 100% chimerism, which means if you looked at his blood, um, all the cells came from the donor. Not, none came from, from him. And he's now been off therapy for, for 18 months or longer now, obviously, uh, and, and they can't really find virus anywhere. So, so again, uh, one of the questions with Timothy Brown was how important was it to get CCR5 negative donor? And I, I think it was probably very important. If you compare them, the, the thing that's most similar about them is they got this uh, CCR5 uh, negative donor. They only had R5 virus. Um, the recipient, the London patient was CCR5 wild type. Remember, Timothy Brown was actually um, uh, heterozygous for the CCR5 deletion. Um, the, the conditioning was different. And um, they did both have this 100% chimerism. Uh, so it, it seems um, that um, uh, the importance of having this um, CCR5 uh, deleted donor uh, is really significant in these two patients. And there have been other bone marrow transplant patients in whom therapy has been stopped who didn't have a CCR5 donor. And as far as I know, all of those have rebounded. Uh, and and um, this is not a strategy for all our patients, right? Because bone marrow transplants are super dangerous um, and you only get them if you have leukemia or, or lymphoma. Uh, and Dan um, Baruch is really gonna talk about cure in a much broader context. So, so that's my summary. Um, and I think I have time for questions and answers. I think.
You do. You didn't have to poke your laser in my eye. So uh, we usually have we usually have a light here that goes red, you know, and when it's time to stop your talk, um, the light broke. So I was threatening to shine a laser in one of the two eyes uh, if they went over. So I terrified my speakers today. Uh, question cards. We have question cards are coming around and and saving seats is not a good idea because people are actually waiting for seats. Uh, all right, so when it's good, seats are a little, it's a little hard getting through, but um, good. A um, couple things, uh, so again, ask questions in the question cards, we have, we have a couple. Um, I wanna point out one thing, the San Francisco County is the same thing as San Francisco city. So the city and county are actually the same, unlike Chicago or Cook County is much larger and has its own governance. Uh, in, in San Francisco, it's all the same. Uh, a second plug uh, is, um, I don't know how many have read a really wonderful novel, The Great Believers. So any of you that work in Chicago um, and weren't around in the early epidemic should really read it. Um, I just finished it and it's set in Chicago. It's kind of real people and it's wonderful. And it really, I think very effectively gets you back to the days when uh, when people were one by one getting infected and dying of AIDS. Uh, so something that a lot of people have not experienced. Um, so um, another uh, little plug uh, is that ISUSA, in addition to our programs, uh, publishes a journal called Topics in uh, HIV Medicine. Um, it's all online, and we do a really nice job of summarizing CROI. Uh, we have really good scientists that cover the meeting uh, uh, and write about it. Uh, so it's a really great place if you want to deep dive into uh, into the science uh, that's presented at CROI, uh, I recommend it. Um, so uh, question cards. Uh, patient tells you they were uh, uh, on and off PrEP, but then seroconverted. Uh, would you feel comfortable starting with just three ARVs? How would you uh, treat a person in that situation if they've seroconverted having been on PrEP? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I think that the real question is, do, do you wait for a genotype or do you do kind of a kind of a rapid start? And I, I think I would probably wait for a genotype in that setting. Now, in, in the study from New York, they didn't see any tenofovir resistance. What my worry would be, would be if someone had both TDF or tenofovir resistance and TTC, FTC resistance. That would be my, my worry. Based on the dawning study, I think the fact that they have M184V, the, the therapies that you choose, like Victegavir, um, uh, uh, TAF, FTC, Dalyotegavir, TAF, FTC, et cetera, probably will be just fine in that setting. Um, but if they had a, um, a K65R in addition, you, you might actually modify what you do. And, and um, so, so I think that I would probably wait for the genotype in that setting. Um, though there, people may disagree, there's probably little harm you would do um, uh, uh, by starting one of those therapies. Uh, maybe people would prefer a boosted darunavir in that setting, um, but I, I would probably I would probably wait for the genotype personally. Um, so another question uh, on the card was kind of help us remember, those of us that 
um, have forgotten the K65R, the implications of, of that resistance on the activity of other uh, other nukes. Yeah, so so K65R um, is actually a pretty broad resistance mutation. Um, it leads to resistance to um, uh, uh, 3TC and FTC, so it contributes to resistance of 3TC and FTC um, to tenofovir, um, either TAF or TDF. The fold change is small, but but it. The, those drugs clearly select for it, so I think it has an impact. And then it also has an impact on a back of here. The one thing it doesn't have an impact on is zidovudine. So it actually increases uh, susceptibility to zidovudine. If you have 184V and 65R, you have a, a virus that's very sensitive to zidovudine. And, and maybe the one scenario where you might consider using that drug. I mean, I, I, I haven't used it in a long time, but I do have one patient who's still on zidovudine who has that exact mutation combination, so. Great, great. Um, here's a question that I'm not surprised we see. You, you mentioned the low-level viremia, the repliclones, and all of that. Uh, do you, would you suggest intensifying therapy in those people? Is that showing uh, any benefit? I, I, we have not been able to find benefit to intensification. I, I think if the patient is between 50 and 200 and it's consistent, I would not do anything. If you have someone who is consistently below 50 and then they uh, pop into that area, the only thing I would do is I would follow them a little more carefully. I would have them come back. and, and But if they stayed in that range, I would, I would, I would basically not do anything. So um, in, on NPR, they always you know, have a disclaimer of they're talking about some company or something that's a sponsor of NPR, right? They say, you know, we should disclose that. Uh, so this is a disclosure. Gilead is a great sponsor of our meeting, but there, there have been questions about cost of prep uh, and the, and, and, Gilead is obviously um, making uh, making it more widely available recently. But the question really is about the cost of PrEP, which in, in many situations still is a, a challenge. Uh, with Truvada, and I'll use the brand names because I think as you did, I think it's good sometimes to kind of uh, use what people uh, know. Um, as that's going generic, uh, it will be cheaper than the TAF alternative. Uh, think about cost effectiveness, uh, the difference in toxicity versus uh, the rest. Can you comment on? Yeah, sure. I think this will probably come up in the discussion. So maybe I'll, I'll just, I think based on the results of the Discover study, that even though the incidence was lower with TAF FTC, they were not different. That You know, the numbers look different. The, the, the graphs were made by the company that uh, 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 makes the drugs, so so they they kind of accentuated the difference. They were not different, um, and I think uh, therefore, in the setting of low risk of renal disease or bone disease, uh, I, I would uh, feel very comfortable with a less expensive alternative. Um, so what what you could ask Rafi though this afternoon is um, what about uh, TDF? 3TC that is generic right now. Um, so that would be a great question to ask this afternoon because I don't know the answer to that, but, um, and you guys can ask them. And it hasn't been tested. It has, that, well, like, yeah. that would be the argument. It hasn't been tested. So another question about TAF, would you use TAF in a patient with nephrotic syndrome, uh, diabetic? Uh, GFR is above 30, uh, but clearly not 
doing well. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Eric might want to comment on this later, but I, I would feel comfortable. The, the thing that worries me about a diabetic is if they are, they have diabetes and, and their creatinine clearance is less than 50, it's almost certainly going to progress. That's kind of the natural history of, of renal dysfunction and diabetes. So um, with a creatinine clearance greater than 30, I would be fine with using uh, a TAF-containing regimen, uh, but you would have to understand that over time, they would probably fall below that 30 uh, uh, mLs per minute creatinine clearance. And, and then you may have to think about a different therapy at that point. Um, so here's, here's my question. Uh, you, you're, you're a leader in the field. You do a lot of research. You go to CROI. You speak at CROI. Um, many of us, I think, go to CROI and hope that we're going to learn something that improves our clinical management. Think ahead. Put your crystal ball on and what do you think we're likely to hear at the next CROI that changes our clinical management? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Next CROI. I don't know that we're, I'm trying to think of something big that will happen um, at the next CROI. Um, I'm not going to steal Eric's thunder, but we might have data on every two months long acting potentially um, instead of every one month, which he's going to go into in, in detail. I, I think that we, we will have, I think, uh, actual clinical data on MK8591, which Eric will uh, talk about. Um, I don't think we'll have any data on uh, cabotegravir as a prevention, so long-acting cabotegravir as a prevention. I don't think the studies uh, will be ready by then. Um, I don't know, Eric, what else? Or, or Judy? All right. More capsid inhibitor data. Yeah. So new yeah. drugs yeah. that yeah. you'll I, hear I, about I next? I think there'll be new drug data, I think. Um, yeah, I think it'll all still be pretty All right, yeah. all right. So you say a drug is fully active. What do you mean? Um, uh, yeah, it's an excellent question. What I mean when <laughs> I'm fully active is that when you look at the genotype or phenotype, um, there's no difference from wild type in, in terms of, of drug activity. So, so that's what I mean by that. Um, and I think uh, we're used to this with protease inhibitors being partially active, right? Because you have to accumulate a whole bunch of mutations to become uh, high-level resistance to some of our protease inhibitors, like the runivir and lopinavir. Um, so, so protease inhibitors are thought of as being partially active. We don't think about non-nukes as being partially active. We kind of think of them being off and on. Um, and what we don't know, but but I think there's enough data, is that when the M184V is present, 3TC and almost certainly FTC does have partial activity, and nobody really understands that. Um, but but it, there's a whole bunch of old studies that I think demonstrate that pretty clearly. So uh, here's a question that maybe we touched on uh, earlier. It might be one that uh, Rafi comes back with later. If someone is on PrEP and has acute seroconversion, uh, would you still wait for genotypes no, to come? That I would definitely wait. If, if, if you think someone's actually taking PrEP and, they're actually, and, and they have acute seroconversion, I would definitely... Uh, you know, I try to rush that genotype, but I would wait for a genotype because the few examples of uh, transmission where someone's clearly been uh, taking their uh, PrEP have um, had, uh, I think, four out of the five or five out of the six have had multi-drug-resistant virus. There's one example of someone that had a, a sensitive virus, but um, uh, I think in general, I would be worried that that virus is... Um, uh, has more than just like a 184B, for example. So even though we talk about, you know, starting treatment very 
early in acute infection, that's one situation where same day treatment is probably not a good Yeah, idea. that's what I would say. You, when, when the panel comes up, we, we, we could get the panel members to talk. I think that's a great question. Uh, here's a one about a, a, a woman who is um, uh, not taking birth control, so I guess at risk for pregnancy. Does that affect uh, your choice in PrEP or PEP uh, regimens? PrEP or PEP? Uh, yeah, excellent question, actually. Um, not for PrEP, I don't think there's any issue. Um, uh, I, I mean, what's approved is TDFFTC, so that's what, what I would choose. And then in terms of PEP, uh, I guess it would, I would probably use rotavivir over dalutavivir until we have more data um, uh, for, 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 for PEP. Um, uh, that actually just came up in our, our setting. Um, and if we get to run to IV PrEP, or PEP rather? Oh, I don't know. Cabotegravir. Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Cabotegravir, which is structurally similar to dolutegravir, has um, uh, been kind of, people have been cautious about that <coughs> neural tube defects. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think long-acting PEP is a, is a really interesting idea, and, and um, it would... Probably work. Yeah. I mean, you know. Um. All right. With, with that rousing endorsement. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Great. Uh, and I really do still love the energy in the room. So keep, uh, keep your question cards handy uh, as, this, as the talks go on, because it's, it's fun to get as many of your questions answered as we can. I'll try not to ask too many of my own questions, but once in a while I can't resist.